Well, we just had a spiritual moment as we acknowledged our utter dependence upon the Lord God this morning. I sang along as well as you did, acknowledging my own weakness and need for Him as we opened the Word of God. If you will, open your copy of the Scripture, Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24. It's always a good thing to uh, tell the Lord you need Him need him every hour. In fact, we expand on it every minute, every moment of the day. Thank you guys for that wonderful rendition that is a balm to the soul. Luke chapter 24. Let me read these words that you're hearing uh, before we begin the exposition of them. Verse 44, we begin there. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance For forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I'm using as a subject for these verses this morning the plan of salvation. People, you perhaps heard them say this, of an event as an accident of history, something that was unintended. Such an idea cannot be applied to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was no accident of history. It was planned history. It was planned before history began in eternity. It was to be executed in human history. And it was. And it, the death and resurrection of our Lord, was plan A. There never was a plan B or a plan C or a second thought. For God intended that what he determined would come to pass. Jesus, in instructing his disciples subsequent to his death, his resurrection, make this point abundantly clear. In fact, reflecting on our Lord's teaching, Christians proclaim the divine design of suffering, his suffering and resurrection. You'll recall in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 23, in part that verse reads, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In fact, what those wicked men did was part of the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Of God. In praying to God, after the incident with wicked men who wanted them not to proclaim the gospel in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, speaking about the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, the saints prayed that those people did whatever your hands, praying to God, and purpose predestined to occur. Clearly, Christians understood. Uh, that history as it unfolded, in particular regarding Christ and his suffering and his resurrection, is precisely what God had planned, what he had determined. 
after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus told his disciples that what had happened to him historically was foretold by him to them. In other words, he had been telling them all along uh, this was going to happen. Consider with me then uh, the person of the plan. We find that in verse 44. Jesus spoke of the plan to save sinners, as I indicated a moment ago, and you see it in verse 44 when he says, while I was still with you, meaning during his earthly ministry, prior to his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, he had been telling them this. In fact, the Gospels records, it record at least 17 separate passages where Christ predicted his death and resurrection. He told them in advance, guys, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised the third day. He told them this before it came to pass. And his prophecy about his suffering was drawn from the Old Testament. And he was, in fact, central, the central figure in God's program for salvation. He was indispensable to the purpose of God in salvation. Let's put it simply, no Jesus, no redemption. No Jesus, no gospel. No Jesus, no forgiveness of sin. No Jesus, no heaven. He was central to God's purpose in salvation. The Old Testament testified about him. Jesus told the religious leaders of Israel that the Bible, their Bible, testified about him. You recall, for example, in John chapter 5, verse 39, he said this to them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. They were combing through the Old Testament trying to find out how to get eternal life, and their eternal life was standing right in front of them. He said, those scriptures that you are looking at, you're reading, that you're searching through, they talk about me. Our Lord becomes even more specific later in the passage of chapter 5 of John, verse 46. He says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses wrote about him. And in our text, verse 44, Jesus draws a direct line from the Old Testament to himself. He says, the Hebrew Bible points to me. The Bible you read in the synagogues, the scrolls that you unfurled, all of that is talking about me. And he says there, you'll notice the bottom of verse 44, it's written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Therein you find it talking about him. He already told us about what they say, uh, Moses says about him. And here he is saying it to his disciples. You say, where in the law of Moses does it talk about it? Remember, in the first five books, the first one is Genesis. Genesis 3.16, the seed of the woman. You journey on a little further in the book of Genesis, go to chapter 22. He is the ram in the bush. 
talks about him. There are other places in the Pentateuch that talk about Jesus. You go to the uh, prophets, and the former prophets, the historical books, talks about him. The later prophets, the major and minor prophets, talk about him. You remember the major prophet Isaiah talks about him, that classic passage in Isaiah 53. And you move along to the Psalms. The Psalter, of course, is included in this rubric or designation of the Psalms. You remember in the Psalms, for example, Psalm 16 talks about him. Peter repeats it in his sermon, applying that to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Psalm 22. The crucifixion of Christ is presented there. His forsakenness is presented there, Psalm 22. Remember Psalm 69. The Psalter, the Psalms, rather, includes this rubric or this designation, uh, includes the wisdom literature. Job. Job knew his Redeemer lives and stand up in the latter days. He'll see him in the flesh. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. All of these talk about him. <laughs> so you have the whole sweep of Old Testament history speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he is saying here to his men. Guys, it's about me. Imagine. Saying that, and you're there, you're listening to him, the resurrected Lord, telling you that the scriptures you grew up on, the scriptures you imbibed as a child and as a younger person and as an adult, it talks about the one for whom, to whom you're looking at that very moment. But he says at the bottom of the verse, three words must be fulfilled. Must, the Greek word there. Uh, means it is necessary. The sufferings that were talked about about, about Jesus Christ, uh, those things were necessary. His death and resurrection, the death of Messiah, was necessary to accomplish the plan of salvation. There's no other way for salvation to be achieved. It must be fulfilled. God's word must come to pass. It's necessary. For salvation and Jesus is the central figure in all of it. He is indeed the person of the plan, the plan of salvation. Then let's look then at the, the basis of the plan as we move along to verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. <laughs> all this was revealed in the Old Testament, what Jesus just enunciated in the previous verse. But for the disciples to grasp the revelation uh, that Scripture is, Jesus needed to grant them illumination. They needed supernatural enablement to see the mess messianic prophecies in the Old Testament applied to him. You see, people can read the Bible and not get it. They can read it and miss the truth. They can read it and not understand it. And so Jesus, what he does, he illuminates their minds. He gives them understanding. He gives them the ability to grasp the truth. And when they read the text, they say, ah, now I see. It's about you. This is important. 
their understanding about Jesus also need to have a biblical basis. They need to know that the Hebrew Bible was there. They needed to know this because they would preach to their fellow Jews. And they needed to show the fellow Jews, their fellow Jews, that what we're telling you about Jesus, the Old Testament talks about him. Peter did that. You read a sermon on the day of Pentecost, and you'll find out that he used the Old Testament and applied those texts that applied to Jesus and his sufferings. Jesus was there getting that Bible study from Jesus that day when Jesus illumined his mind. And when he stood up to preach the first sermon in the Christian era, he took the truths that Jesus taught him and proclaimed them to his fellow Jews. Peter wasn't alone. Others did the same thing when they preached. They had a biblical basis for their proclamation. Stephen had it. And you'll see it through the book of Acts. That all we teach about Jesus has a, a biblical grounding. It comes out of the word of God, the Old Testament. It wasn't some recent development concocted by the church. No, no, this was in God's word all along. So Jesus then once their, uh, their minds were open, once they could grasp the truth, you could see in verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. With their minds open, and he could teach them what the Old Testament said about what they just recently experienced. <laughs> Think about this. They've already seen uh, that he indeed is. Last week we saw it. Uh, he, he appeared, remember? One of his spirits over a 40-day period. He appeared. He, they, yes, I'm raised. I'm alive. And is that the Christ? Christ, um, that's the English uh, translation for the Hebrew Messiah. Would suffer and rise again from the third day. So all along, I said it earlier, plan A was <laughs> plan A, and was, that was all there was. The alphabet stopped with God at A. <laughs> it was pre-planned. Prophecy was realized in human history. So we have the person of the plan. The basis of the plan, of course, is nothing than the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection on the third day. For without that, there is no salvation possible for anybody at all. Next thing we look at is the proclamation of the plan. Isn't that fascinating? proclamation of the plan it was intended all along that the word would go out remember when I read earlier in this service and I said pay attention to Acts chapter 3 verses 17 through 26 and in that passage it says that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you Abraham 
that the gospel then. The gospel was preached to Abraham, Galatians says. It's God's plan. The proclamation of the plan. In verse 47, we have, beginning here, Luke's version of the Great Commission. We're most familiar with Matthew's version of the Great Commission, but this is Luke's version of the Great Commission. It's the divine mandate to proclaim salvation from sin, that it is available. It is our message to the world. That's why it says, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. We are, like Paul, ambassadors of Christ. We have been commissioned by him. Originally, it was the disciples, and we follow in their train. We're to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins. Let's look at that word forgiveness for a moment. Forgiveness means, the word in the original means to send away. In the Old Testament, you recall, there is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, there were two goats. Remember that? One goat was slain. That, that goat represented substitution. There's another goat. We call it, you got the word scapegoat. <laughs> Come from that. That goat was sent away into the wilderness. That, that goat pictured the removal of our sin. It pictured, therefore, forgiveness. In salvation, God removes our sin. He removes its guilt and penalty. He sends it away. And it can't come back. You say, how far does he send it away? As far as the east is from the west. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, the day of Yom Kippur, uh, that pictured Jesus Christ. It pointed to him. I don't know if Jesus gave them that particular lesson. He may have. We don't know how much time. You know, the Bible is a compressed book. It doesn't tell you everything that went on. Uh, it'd be bigger than it is. But no doubt that Jesus pointed to them Yom Kippur. That's about me. Christ took it away our sin by his sacrifice. The two goats function was accomplished by the one Christ. The forgiveness, get this, is judicial. This is critical. It's judicial. The judge of the entire universe declares the Repentant sinner, forgiven. That's what happened to us when we repented. That's what happened to us when we trusted Christ. The judge of the entire universe declared us forgiven. Bared our sin in the sea. 
And as it has been said, that's in Micah, as it has been said, God put a sign out on the beach, no fishing allowed. Notice something in the text as well, repentance is required. Repentance is not merely feeling sorry for one's sin. It's not merely feeling remorse. It will include that, but it's a turning away from them. Saying, I'm done. And I'm going to tell you something. It, it doesn't happen on our own. We're commanded to repent, but repentance has to be granted to the believer. In fact, uh, that's really clear. In Luke's subsequent, uh, his other book, Acts, Acts chapter 5, he says it in verse 31. Again, uh, Peter's preaching. Peter did a lot of preaching. And he says, um, verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior. Now look, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus at the right hand, Peter is telling his fellow Jews, he is there at the right hand of God the Father, place of honor and power and authority, and he is the one who grants forgiveness and repentance. Gifts come from him. When anybody ever comes to faith in Christ, it's Jesus at the right hand of the Father who's granting those spiritual blessings, those gifts to them. He purchased them by his death on the cross. Your pardon and my pardon was purchased by Christ's death. Your forgiveness and all of that that comes with salvation was purchased by Christ on the cross. And he grants repentance and forgiveness. They come from him. Jesus is telling his men in verse 47 of our passage, Luke chapter 24, they're to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins. And they're to be, it's to be proclaimed in his name. Notice that, what it says, in his name. Who he is and what he has done. His death and resurrection for sinners. Tell them that's why you can have forgiveness. That's why you can repent. It's because of what Christ has done. He grants it. There is no forgiveness apart from Christ. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from what he's done. If a person refuses him, they are in effect saying, I refuse forgiveness from God. People cannot be forgiven if they refuse repentance and trust him for the salvation he gives. Now you notice in the text, this is to be proclaimed to all the nations. Notice the universal scope of the commission. All people everywhere on the globe. The apostles were the first to proclaim the message. Each succeeding generation of believers is to proclaim this message, this gospel. I'm not ashamed to admit that um, I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> That's the generation I was born in. Yeah. 
That's how these sociologists describe people who were born when I was. Then there are people called millennials. That's another generation. Whether you're a boomer or a millennial or a Gen X or Gen Y or Gen whatever. If you're a child of God, you're to proclaim the gospel. Each generation is to take, so to speak, the gospel baton and run with it to others and share with them what is taught here. Now, let's dig a little further. You see the word nations there? Ethne. It's the Greek word. The word ethnicities come from that. Ethnicities. All ethnicities. None are to be excluded. The gospel's for all men. I was reminded this last week that as I was reading that some African Americans say Christianity is, quote unquote, the white man's religion. In fact, there's a uh, black religious identity cults. There are black religious identity cults that have sprung up. I'm reading a book on apologetics, urban apologetics. Excellent book. And it deals with this thing because these people are committed to bringing the gospel to people who do not believe it because they think the origins and expression of Christianity means they're excluded and they want to have nothing to do with it, but their souls are at stake. And this is what I think about it, ultimately. Satan plays the race card in the most diabolical way. He promotes this lie that Christianity is a white man's religion through false teachers, the black religious identity cults. Satan's objective is the eternal damnation of souls, and it is not beneath him to use a racially based lie to achieve his evil intentions. That's reality. So you see, he doesn't care who you are. He'll find whatever is necessary to get you to hell to get you there. But the truth of the matter is this. Christianity is for all men. Because Christ is Lord of all humanity. Acts chapter 10 verse 36 states, Jesus Christ he is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. He doesn't discriminate on the basis of race, color, or national origin. He receives all who come to him in repentant faith. And so, we see this even backed up in our Lord's saying, he continues in verse 20, 47, beginning from Jerusalem. You see, <laughs> it started there with the Jews. Shall I put it like this? The gospel train began rolling in Jerusalem. And it continued to other cities, towns, nations, and continents. In fact, it's still moving. People take the gospel. It's picking up riders. And the gospel train is headed to its final destination. You know what it is, heaven. 
He gets there and it disembarks its riders. We've gotten on when they believe the gospel. And so we'll expand the gospels going forward to a whole world in every generation. In verse 48, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. Uh, the disciples can testify because they saw it all. They were eyewitnesses to the historical events involving Jesus. They saw the plan unfold before their very eyes. Notice they have a, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. They have their own eyewitness testimony to the fulfillment of what the Bible said would happen to Messiah. And it's none other than in Christ. But, just one more thing. The power of the plan. The power of the plan. Jesus says, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. You stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Effective witness requires divine power. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, you will have the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. This is a Pentecost predicted. The Holy Spirit is our partner. Yea, he's our senior partner in gospel ministry. We speak, but he supplies the power. He's the promise of the Father. And what Jesus meant by that, notice, he said in the upper room discourse, he told them he was going to send them a, another helper. Remember that? The promise extends even further back than that. Jesus predicated his words on the reality that God said in Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you. Holy Spirit, you had to come. There is no effective ministry apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. You, you and I are doomed if we think we can do this work in our own strength. Uh, if we do it in our own strength, we're on a fool's errand. We need the Spirit of God. You see, this, this whole thing is warfare. And the weapons of our warfare According to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, for though we walk in the flesh, that is in the human body, we do not war according to the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Let me explain. Speaking about fortresses, unsaved people barricade themselves behind fortresses. They want to keep out the truth. They don't want the truth. And so they hold up these fortresses. But the weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of these fortresses. Paul goes on to say, we're destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He is doing that in the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. It's the Spirit. Powered by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. That's why we need the Holy Spirit, because of what we face. Another thing we face, 
regarding sinners. They are satanically blinded. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, I believe it is, or 4, 3, or 4, 4, they're spiritually blinded by Satan, satanically blinded. He blinds the minds of the unbelievers so they do not receive the gospel. So they barricade themselves behind lies. They don't want to hear the truth. And Satan's blinding their minds so they will not receive the truth. And then there's a third thing we're against. They are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. <laughs> These are formidable obstacles that cannot be overcome by human persuasiveness. There is no orator on this planet who can speak so powerfully, compellingly that he can bring a soul to Christ. None. There is none with such wisdom and eloquence that he can so speak that people say, oh, yes, I'm going to trust Christ because of your persuasive eloquence, your logic. No. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter, when he stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached and 3,000 souls were saved, it's because he spoke in the power of the Spirit. That's why Jesus said, you stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. From heaven. Supernatural power. Divine power. Clothe. Clothed with power? <laughs> That's a figure of speech, as you know. The Holy Spirit is pictured as clothing us, putting us He's put on us as if he's clothing. John Walvert believes it means covering human weakness. And I really like that. Because, indeed, it is, we are weak. I just said a moment ago, we cannot speak so powerfully, compellingly, eloquently, or anything like that to win souls. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. So he has to come and clothe us with power. We are weak. Weak in ourselves. You know, you can be stammering and stuttering and giving the gospel and you can seem like you've done nothing. And if the Holy Spirit's empowering it, he takes your weakness, your inarticulateness, and brings the gospel home to a heart. When those kind of things happen, you say, ah, nobody but him. Then perhaps you can have a good day. Man, just the words just flow. Say, oh, I'm really, I'm really getting it to them. And they, mm, they yawn. We need the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus said, wait. Stay in Jerusalem until you see power from on high, then you can fulfill the Great Commission. Think about us. We're part of the plan, aren't we? All of us. First of all, gospel is applied to us, saved. And now what we're doing, we proclaim the gospel. Part of the plan. And I'm going to tell you what. 
This is the best possible thing to be involved in in human history because we are doing that which is eternal. Everything else that men do apart from Jesus Christ and his kingdom is temporary. Yesterday I was, we were talking, my wife and I, and I had mentioned the fact that all the monuments and all the stuff that men do and all their accolades, all their achievements, one day will be on the ash heap of history. In fact, there won't even be an ash heap because heaven and earth is going to go away along with all this stuff. Now, I'm not saying don't do something worthwhile with your life. And I'm not saying that, but do understand it is just temporary. If you do that to the neglect of this, it's like holding up some sand in the windstorm. It'll be gone. What we're doing has eternal significance. The plan of salvation began in eternity past in the mind of God. It'll be concluded in eternity future when all God's children are gathered together around his throne and giving him praise forever and ever, thanking the lamb who was slain. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these gospel truths. Help us uh, to be uh, committed more deeply to dissemination of your word to lost men and women, no matter what their circumstances, relying upon your spirit, even this day, I pray that you use these truths to bring sinners to yourself. May they see their lostness. May they see their need for forgiveness that comes in repentance. Grant it to them, Lord Jesus, for your own glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. These things I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We look forward to seeing you.